Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You remember saying those words, mustering up the courage to say that phrase to yourself after the bully at school made fun of you for the umpteenth time? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You know, someone has to teach us this phrase because its message isn't natural to us. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You know, it's well-intentioned. It's meant to be consoling. And we could see why it should be true, right? Words don't physically hurt people. The opinions of others shouldn't be ultimately what define and mark us. But for as much as we see that the phrase should be consoling, for as much as it might make sense on the surface, this phrase, when we say it to ourselves or when we hear it from someone else, ends up ringing hollow, doesn't it? We know deep down, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We know deep down that really isn't true. Because if we followed this, just think about it, then what would we say to bullies who use hard words? Johnny, it's okay that you tell your mama jokes because words never hurt your neighbor. No. We wish it was true. We wish it was true that sticks and stones break our bones, but words will never hurt us. But it's often the opposite that's true. Broken bones heal. There are words spoken to us that have become a part of us and have remained wounds that last for the rest of our lives that don't heal. So as we continue in the letter of James, James addresses our words. James will show that our words wield a tremendous power over our lives and others, both for good and for bad, and that our words uniquely reveal what is inside of our hearts. So we're continuing in James. We started in chapter 1. We have made our way to chapter 3. It'll be really helpful if you look at the Bible while we're going through it together. So you'll find James chapter 3, if you're looking at a Bible that looks like this, there's red in the pew rack in front of you, on page 1012, 1012. Just a note, if you're new to the Bible, the chapter numbers, so when I say 3, that's the big number in bold print, and the verse numbers are those little numbers at the beginning of sentences. So we're going to start in James chapter 3, verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large, and are driven by strong winds. They are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being 
can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. James's concern throughout his letter is that his readers would have a wholehearted devotion to God. In one place, he calls this pure and undefiled religion before God the Father. So he spends the letter discussing and dissecting area after area of his readers' lives where they prove to have hearts that are divided. Divided between attempting to serve the Lord and attempting to serve themselves at the same time. And no other area of our lives shows our divided devotion and our divided hearts quite like our speech. Not only is our speech a key area where we live out our devotion to the Lord, kind of an application of where we were last time in James, a work we do that shows we have faith, the biggest one is our words. Not only does our speech show our faith, but our speech uniquely shows that we are in desperate need of healing. Desperate need of healing. And friends, this healing is impossible on our own. But the good news, and the good news of the entire Bible, is that what is impossible with man is possible with God, who gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So our main point of this time, this passage, just to repeat, is that our speech uniquely shows our desperate need of healing. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. So if we're going to get healing for our speech, then we need to realize three truths. First, speech is powerful. Second, speech is impossible to control. And third, speech is a window. Speech is powerful. Speech is impossible to control. Third, speech is a window. That'll be how we'll organize our time. Before we really jump in, though, James introduces his subject in a unique way. You see that in verse 1. He introduces his subject by catching his reader's attention. He opens with a shocking statement. Verse 1, he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James is a preacher. And good preachers catch their audience's attention so that they'll perk up and listen to the truth. By the way, that's my goal in my introductions. Kind of sneak it in. So what James says here, not many of you should become teachers. To me, it sounds like a professional baseball player holding a baseball camp for kids, all kids who want to be like this professional baseball player, and the baseball player saying, you guys aren't going to become pro baseball players. Kind of deflating the enthusiasm of the whole camp. Now, if you think about it, though, these these words, words like that might seem harsh, but it actually might be caring to say from a baseball player because many of those kids won't become baseball players. So I think James's words are along the same lines, but still the analogy breaks down because there are some of them who will become teachers. 
James says, not many of you. He does not say, none of you. So those who do teach, and notice he includes himself in that. You see, he says, we, those who do teach, need to understand that God will call them to account for what he's given them to take care of. God will call them to account what he's given them to take care of. And so God's given teachers and preachers a a big influence for the spiritual direction and growth of his church. And how do teachers exercise that influence? It's through their words. That's the main way they influence the spiritual growth of the church. That's the main way they teach. They need words to teach. And so the connection here to James's main topic is if we are all prone to stumble and sin with our words, and then teachers need to especially take heed because teachers talk all the time. You're going to hear me talk for some 40 minutes. <laughs> so I need to take heed. And so it's not teachers, though, who sin in their speech. Everyone does. So verse 2, James pivots. He says, we all stumble in many ways, not just teachers, but everybody, no exception. Now, before we jump into the first truth we need to understand, if we're going to get healing for our speech, I want you to notice James's tone in this passage. James's tone. Now, as you keep going on in this letter, James is going to get firmer. But he sets the tone in this section from the first verse. It's a tone that is honest. It's loving. It's pleading. There are times to be firm, yes, which takes a high level of discernment. But for all of us, and especially teachers or preachers, James's tone of honesty, of love, and earnestness, that's what should mark our speech. So you see, James is applying what he says to himself. It's honest. Which, friends, would you pray that I do this? Would you pray that your elders do this? Apply the word they teach to themselves? If I have my wits about me when I'm preparing a sermon, I will ask the Lord, Lord, help me apply this to myself before I seek to apply it to your people, to be honest. But then James, we see also, he constantly refers to his readers as brothers. The original word is not so specific to refer to males only. We could say brothers and sisters. So it's a warm, loving tone. He's not speaking to this as one who is above them. He's speaking to them as one who is with them, in this with them, together with them. He has a burden for them. We see this throughout this passage, throughout his letter. So we just think about this from the outset. How easy would it be for James to give instructions about speech and words, using speech and words that are arrogant and demeaning and belittling? That's not the case. See, James's tone is honest. It's humble. It's loving. It's pleading. So transitioning into the main topic then, the area of speech, first truth about speech we need to realize in order to get healing in this area is that speech is powerful. Speech is powerful. Despite the size of the tongue, it has tremendous capability both for good and for bad. We see this in verses 2 to 6. So you can glance through them again. You see, James shows two sides of the powerful nature of the tongue. On the good side, James says, even though the tongue is small, if we control it, 
we control how we live. In other words, we can, if we can control our speech, we can control our life, how we behave. Like a good preacher, James illustrates his point. He shows that even though items are small, even small items can have a big influence. It can control big items. So you've seen enough rodeos on TV or maybe in person. Maybe you've even ridden a horse and have felt its power to see that horses can be unruly and wild. But such powerful and wild animals can be controlled and steered simply by putting a bit into its mouth. A piece of metal goes all the way back into its mouth where there's no teeth and you kind of yank on it to control the horse. So a small piece of metal controls such a wild and unruly animal. But James gives another illustration. He never saw aircraft carriers, but James knows basic physics like us, that with the right shape and position, it doesn't take too large of an item to deflect water in order to steer and control even the largest of vessels. So a bit, a rudder, even though they're small, they control big items. So our tongue, even though it's small, controlling it will lead to control in the rest of our lives. Now, why is this true? I think we see a couple of reasons. I think it's true because when you compare controlling our speech to everything else, everything else just seems easy. If you can play Chopin on the piano, you could probably play chopsticks on the piano too. It's likely that you, um, the parts of our lives are kind of like a switchboard, what James is saying here, and that our speech is like the master switch that goes above all of it. If you get that, everything else can be turned on as well. But it's more than just everything else in comparison is easy. The speech, self-control in our speech leads to self-control in life because our speech impacts every area of our lives. Speech impacts every area of our lives. Friends, this means we need to understand that our speech is more than what comes out of our mouths. You think about this. More than the actual words we say. In order to think, we have to put our thoughts into words. In order to plan, we have to describe our steps in words. In order to imagine and paint pictures in our minds, we have to have words somewhere in there. We don't just have harmful feelings of resentment and self-pity. We have to express those feelings and fuel those feelings with words we say to ourselves, with speech. So you see, if we control our words, our speech, it will impact every area of our lives. That's why James can say, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. If we control what we say, beyond just the actual words we speak, but all of our speech, we will be spiritually mature. This is great power. This is great power, great potential for good in our lives, even from a small item. So verse 5, he says, the tongue is a small is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Our speech is powerful, controls, impacts every part of our lives. But, yes, there's a but. Its massive influence 
cannot just be used for good, no. We know all too well, its massive influence can also be used for bad. Second part of verse five, James begins to talk about the other side of the powerful nature of the tongue, its capacity for destruction. So on the good side, James says, even though the tongue's small, it yields a big influence and could be a big influence for good. But on the flip side, he goes on to say, even though the tongue is small, if we don't control it, if we don't control our speech, we will wreck our lives and wreck the lives of others. So again, James uses an illustration to prove his point. He puts on his Smokey the Bear hat and reminds us that large fires begin with the smallest of sparks. He's not thinking of California redwoods, though. He's likely thinking of the brush that covers many of the hills in Israel. Uh, you say it's very hot there, it's very dry there, so when it gets windy in the hills, it makes for ideal conditions for big fires. And just a big fire can start with a small spark. Just because an item is small, it doesn't mean it can't influence for good in massive ways, but neither does it mean it can't influence for bad in massive ways. I think of the movie Men in Black, if you've seen it before. You know, when Will Smith gets handed the noisy cricket gun, it's a gun that can fit in the palm of his hand. So he kind of like poo-poos and is like, oh, this is, this is lame. And he just fires it willy-nilly and gets jumped back 50 feet because it's so powerful. Fails to learn the lesson that even though something is small, it doesn't mean it's not powerful. Our speech might seem like a small matter, but like we said, it affects every area of our lives. James says our tongue is a world of unrighteousness. He's saying our tongue is like the Campbell's tomato soup of sin. You remember the tagline? Possibilities. Possibilities. There are endless possibilities to how we can sin with our speech. And therefore, our speech has the potential, James says, to stain our whole body, set ablaze the entire course of life. It has the potential not just to be influenced by the Lord, but James also says it has the potential to be influenced by Satan, the destroyer, the liar, humbling to think that through our words, Satan's work can be accomplished. Obviously, a, a, the biggest example of this in Peter. Remember, Peter, Jesus says uh, that he has to go die on the cross, and Peter goes up to Jesus very boldly, and rebukes Jesus to his face, saying, you can't do this. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Satan's work through the words of Peter. And so, the first step to getting healing for our speech is to realize its power. Realize its power. Y'all, if we dismiss this, if we just skip over this, We'll be like the guy from Jurassic Park. Yes, it's another 90s movie. This is the last great decade of film. <laughs> the guy from Jurassic Park, from a small mosquito, they found DNA that could recreate dinosaurs. An amazing achievement. But he never considered the damage it could do. What did the wise Jeff Goldblum say? Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they never stopped to think whether or not they should. Did not comprehend or consider its power. So, friend, are you aware 
of the impact of your words, of the impact of your words in every single one of your relationships. Your relationships here with people at church, husbands, your relationship with your wives, wives, your relationship with your husbands, kids, your relationship with your parents, parents, your relationship with your kids, grandparents, grandchildren, every one of our relationships is fueled and impacted by our speech. Are you aware of its impact? We read in Proverbs earlier, don't underestimate the good that our speech can do. The one proverb says, anxiety weighs a man down in his heart, but a good word lifts him up. Don't underestimate the power of a simple, kind word. Y'all, don't underestimate the destruction of harmful words. Don't be the one who says, you know, I just speak how I am. It is who I is. It is who I am. You need to just get over it. If you don't like it, don't listen to me. Don't be that person. Your speech has impact on the people around you. Are you aware of it? Are you aware of the power of your speech and its influence over yourself? Are you, for, are you aware of the impact of your speech has on your emotions, how you process them? Your speech, the impact it has on how you treat and evaluate people, how you respond to your circumstances, how you treat and value God, your speech impacts each one of those areas. Are you aware of its power? We need to know and appreciate what we're dealing with. Our speech is powerful. And if we lack self-awareness, if we kind of just coast when it comes to the area of speech, we will not drift toward using our speech well if we just coast here. Do not, it's like expecting to take your hands off a wheel and saying, oh yeah, the car's going to stay on the road and I'm going to stay in the lane. Friends, we do not drift toward holiness. Put your hand on the wheel and realize the power of your speech. Here's the first step. Well, I know what you might be thinking. All right, yes, absolutely. Our words are powerful. I've experienced their good and their bad impact. I can see how they impact my entire life. You know the sermon can end now. I'm ready. I've learned my lesson. I will start doing good with my speech. Well, friend, I'm sorry to disappoint you. The sermon is not over. <laughs> because it is not that simple. The second step to getting healing for our speech is to understand our speech is impossible to control. Understand our speech is impossible to control. Look with me again at verses 7 to 8. James says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. James goes from the rodeo to the zoo, and he shows our inability to control our speech by contrasting it with our ability to control animals. So we train our dogs to speak and sit and roll over, or at least some of us train our dogs. But even with dangerous and large animals, be it snakes or elephants, give people enough time, give people enough practice, and we can tame and control even the most largest and dangerous animals. This relates to our status that God gave people in creation. Going all the way back to the beginning, Genesis 1, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. James is going to talk about that more later. 
And God said, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. It's a part of the role God has given to us, his people, to exercise dominion over what he's made. Like a rider of a horse, like a pilot of a ship, guiding God's creation. It's the role God's given to us. But in contrast to that, our ability to tame and control animals. James says we lack the ability to tame and control our tongues. Puts it in starker terms than that. He says no human being can tame the tongue. He doesn't leave any wiggle room. It's impossible. We can't do it. Says the tongue is a restless evil. It's always ready to burst out of its cage. It's going back to Genesis again. You remember when God confronts Adam after Adam sinned. And Adam sins again. How? He sins with his speech. What does Adam say to God? The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. The first effects of the fall being among speech set on fire by hell. And it's been the same ever since. Impossible to control. Well, you might say, hypothetical person out there, I was with you with the, on the first point, but now, you know, I'm not so sure. Is it really that bad? I like to think that I'm a nice person, that I say nice things, that I, I have a pretty good control over what I say. And I know plenty of other nice people, too, who say nice things and don't seem to fly off the cuff with what they say. You mean to tell me that it is impossible to control our speech? Well, to clarify you. We aren't saying that everyone is as bad as they could be. But you also have to remember what we said before, that our speech isn't limited to the words that come out of our mouths. It's the words that also buzz around in our head all the time. I don't know about you, but I cannot perfectly control the words that buzz around in my head all the time. But let's just deal with the words we actually vocalize, the speech that comes out of our mouths, what we say to other people. If you dispute the truth that our speech is impossible to control, can you really say that there has never been a time when you said something you shouldn't have? Can you really say that? Can you really say that you've always used your words in the right way even? Not grammatically, I mean, but with the right tone, with the right motive, with the right timing. So the truth that it's impossible to control our speech becomes clear when we think about our experience. Each of us has said words that we wish we could take back. Sometimes, as soon as the words exit our mouths, we say, oh, I wish I could take that back. Other times, it takes a while for us to realize that. Either way, each of us has used words that are harsh, harmful, deceitful, manipulative, careless, words that are flat out wrong. Now, if we fail to realize this truth, that it's impossible to control our speech, we're going to have a false confidence. You have a false confidence, you end up falling anyway. You know, my family and I went to the Cuyahoga County Fair last month. We sat down to eat our barbecue right next to the ladder game. You know the ladder game. It's this 10-foot rope ladder that's stretched out, it's taut, 
is on a, about a 45 degree angle. And the only thing you have to do to win the ladder game is climb up the ladder without falling, hit the buzzer, and you get a prize. And so as we sat down eating our barbecue, we witnessed person after person so confident that they could win the ladder game. And person after person, even the same person multiple times, each one fell. False confidence proven to be false. Well, I know the, the analogy breaks down because one of the qualifications of operating the ladder game is being able to climb the ladder flawlessly every time, but you get the point. If you think controlling your speech is possible, friend, that is a false confidence, and you will quickly be proven wrong. So what do we say to an impossible situation? Do we give up? Is there hope? You know, as, as many of us who are tempted to have a false confidence, there might be as many of us, maybe even more of us, who are tempted to despair. It's not hard for us to see the impossibility of this problem because we are frustrated with the words that come out of our mouths. We can't stand how we talk. We can't stand our foot-and-mouth syndrome. Now, while James doesn't want his readers to have a false confidence, this is an impossible situation. Neither does he want to leave them frustrated and leave them in despair. Yeah, but before we see this, though, we have to realize that the problem gets worse before it gets better. The problem gets worse before it gets better. So, our speech is powerful. Our speech is impossible to control. Thirdly, our speech is a window. And it's a window into a deeper problem. Let's look again at verses 9 to 12. James says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. A good detective knows that for as important as, as the testimonies of witnesses and suspects are, they will not tell him everything he needs to know. A good detective has to look at the evidence. He has to look at the scene of the crime. Not just to hear what others say happened. He has to try to see for himself what happened. This is the point that James made in the previous section of his letter. He says, you may claim to have faith, but you can't rely on a claim alone. Because that claim can be empty unless there is evidence, evidence of works, evidence of a changed life. So evidence is a window into what is actually there in our hearts. And one of the greatest pieces of evidence that we have faith in Christ is our speech. It's our speech. There are few aspects of our lives that give a clearer window to our hearts than our speech. Jesus himself says, we read earlier, that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's a window into what's in our heart. Y'all, you know, we see in that window, and again, James touches on a nerve. It speaks about a reality we are far too familiar with. With the same mouth, we bless our Lord and Father and curse people who are in his likeness. 
Out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing. So our words are a window into our divided hearts. That we attempt to serve the Lord and serve ourselves simultaneously. This is the reality that James has bemoaned throughout his entire letter. So we come here and use our words to sing and pray to God. We lift him up in his holiness and his love and his glory. We are careful not to defame his character with our words. We are careful to represent him accurately with our words. We are sensitive to hearing words that defame God or misrepresent him. Rightly so, friends. But five minutes after being here, we go out there and we are nowhere near as careful with the words we speak to people. Now we know we do not have to be convinced that people are not God, but people are made in the image of God. They have a special dignity and worth and value, each person. Each person meant to reflect God. Each person meant to remind us and point to us the glory of God. And yet we do not have the same care with our words to them. It's not just that we don't do quite enough in how we speak to people. James says we can go even as far to curse people. The way this word is used in the Bible is to call on God to cut off a person from any possible blessing, consigning this person to hell. Now, some of, some of the meanest people in the whole world, some of the meanest people in the whole world fill a church pew every week. Some of the meanest people in all the world fill a church pew every week. People who are passive-aggressive, people who are straight-up actively aggressive, divisive, critical, slanderous, on it goes. If you haven't witnessed this, you are either on the fringe or have not been around church long enough. But get close and stay, and you will see this. I know this is a great advertisement for the church, isn't it? <laughs> but y'all, this isn't heaven. It's not heaven. And either we're sinners or we're not. But still, brothers and sisters, we should weep at this. We should weep at this. We should examine our hearts because of this. Your presence at church, your words about God are not the only evidence that you belong to Christ. There is other evidence that can completely undermine the reality that you belong to Christ. Who among us has not been hurt by this problem? Who among us hasn't been hurt by someone who has lots of lofty speech about God, is a faithful church attender, but is awful to people? Who among us hasn't been hurt? That is a dangerous and damnable combination. It's a reality that so often keeps people from Christ. So here is James's earnest, pleading tone again in verse 10. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Y'all, Christians are not sinless, but we are not hypocrites. We are not duplicitous either. Those who are in Christ are new creations. We've been given new hearts, and those new hearts should lead us to use words consistent with our new hearts. And when that's not the case, when that's consistently not the case, then perhaps it's because we don't have new hearts in the first place. 
That's the point of James's closing illustrations in verses 11 to 12. He says, if a spring pours out salt water, it's not a fresh water spring. If a fig tree produces olives, it's not a fig tree. If a grapevine produces figs, it's not a grapevine. The fruit indicates the source. Bitter words come from a bitter heart. A critical spirit, a critical words come from a critical spirit. Cursing, unloving speech cannot come from a love of Christ. It cannot be explained by a love of Christ. It must have its source in something else. A source of a love for something else. A love for self, a love for sin. You know, when President Richard Nixon first took office, he was skeptical, skeptical about keeping the audio recording system of his predecessor, Lyndon Johnson. Johnson installed the recording system to record all of his meetings and his phone calls. Now, Nixon first tried other ways to record these matters, but came to realize that audio recordings were the only way to ensure a full and faithful account of his conversations and decisions. And boy, was he right. The very tapes that he knew could be used to hold him to account, to reveal what happens behind closed doors, did what they were meant to do, forcing Nixon's resignation after the Watergate scandal. So we're talking about the problem of duplicity, that our words are two-faced, it is a window into our duplicitous hearts or divided hearts, blessing God while cursing others. Now, if we're not careful... We can just think of the worst examples of this and sort of skip over ourselves. But remember, this affects everybody. No human being can tame the tongue. So if you had White House tapes, like Richard Nixon, if your speech to other people, your speech about other people, that takes place outside of these walls, if that speech was recorded and then broadcast for us to hear, would you be embarrassed? If the speech that you tolerate about other people was recorded and then broadcast for us to hear, if the speech that goes on in your head about people, about God, about circumstances, just speech in general, if that was recorded and then broadcast for us to hear, would it, re- would it reveal this problem? Blessing God, cursing others, division. So what we've said so far is a lot of bad news, right? Uh, if this speech is a big deal, it's powerful, controlling it is impossible, not just for some people, but for everybody. Our bad speech can be only explained by a bad source. It can't be explained by a love for Christ. This is all bad news. It is mounting. And you may say, Steve, I thought you were going to talk about healing. Oh, yeah. Before you get healing, though, you need to know that you need healing. And you need to know what you have. Hopefully, we're convinced of that by now. Our speech needs healing, yes, but it's just another evidence that our hearts need healing. So where do we go from here? Where do we go? You may have guessed it. You may have expected it. We go to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel 
allows us to be realistic about what's in our hearts. The gospel does not allow us to deny the problem that our speech shows about us. That our hearts do not love God above all else. They love ourselves above all else. The gospel forces us to be utterly realistic. But neither does it allow us to despair. Our situation is desperate, is impossible, yes. But there is also hope. And that hope, friends, is not in you, is not in me. It is in our Savior, Jesus Christ. So our speech problem, which was only another way to reveal our heart problem, should not lead us to say, oh, you know, I'll just try harder. We've been trying to refute that this whole time. Our speech problem, which reveals our heart problem, should lead us to say again, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. We need Jesus because we need forgiveness. If there is any area of our lives that shows we need forgiveness, it is our words. What we've said, what we haven't said, how we've said, what we've said in our heads. So on the cross, Jesus got what we deserved for every one of our sinful words. He took the punishment in our place. We need Jesus because we need righteousness. These are the basics of the gospel, friends, I know. But some of you need it for the first time. And all of us need to be reminded of it again and again. If there is any area of our lives that shows we have not lived up to what God has called us to live, it is our speech. We need the one of whom it was said, no one ever spoke like him. Jesus, the one in whom there was no deceit in his mouth. The one who spoke perfectly because he is perfect. We need Jesus because we need a new heart. We spend our whole time saying that if any area of our lives shows that we need new hearts, it's our speech. You know, when we believe the gospel, we have new motivations. Seeing the one who lived the way we should have lived, who died the death we deserved, we now want to live for him. And that includes using our words in a way that honors him because we love him, because we're thankful to him, because we worship him using our words in a way like he used his words, selflessly, with holiness, with love. And we have the power to live this way. If you are in Christ, you have the power to live this way, not from yourself, but from the Holy Spirit who is in you. You Remember the first effect of the fall in Genesis for Adam is his tongue set on fire by hell. Sinful speech. One of the first effects of God's new creation in Christ, his work to redeem what's been broken by sin, one of the first effects of that, seen at Pentecost, healed tongues. Tongues set on fire by God. On the same power to control our speech, to live in a way that honors Christ, resides in you by the Holy Spirit, there is hope. Each of us has a speech problem because each of us has a heart problem. So friend, if you come to Jesus, you need him. Who else can handle this impossible situation? Certainly not us. It is only Christ. 
But there is one more question we should answer, though. How do we go forward once we have Jesus? Specifically in the area of our speech. Well, first, I think we need to be careful of taking the principle of fruit coming from a source too strictly. Y'all, we are not trees. We're not saying that the only fruit that those who believe in Jesus will produce is fruit that shows they believe in Jesus. We will have some mixed fruit. We're saying our speech should be consistent, should consistently show we have a renewed heart. Not perfect, but growing. Not perfect, but easy to read. So, going forward, it is 11.51. One hour from now, 12.51. What will your speech be like? Tomorrow, what will your speech be like? We do not want to be like the man James talked about earlier in this book. Who looks at himself intently in a mirror, turns away, and at once forgets what he was like. Now, since we still struggle with how we use our words, it reminds us that sin remains in us, which again reminds us that we never stop needing Jesus. We never get to the point where we have this massive achievement. All right, Jesus, I'm good. I've done it all. Thanks for your help. I don't need you anymore. Go forward then, continuing to cling to Christ. And if our speech comes from what's in our hearts, then we need to go forward continuing to cultivate a heart for Christ, cultivate the heart of Christ. In other words, a heart whose greatest love is your Savior. How do we do that? I think we go back to what James said in chapter 1. Humbly receive God's word into your heart. Fill your heart with what is excellent. Store up what is pleasing to God. Dwell on the beauty of Christ and your love of Christ will be built and then your speech will change. So from that healed, redeemed, and growing heart comes the fruit of speech that honors God and blesses others. Let's pray. Lord, we said it before, we are a people of unclean lips, yet healing is found in you. It's found in the cross where Jesus died for all of our sin. It's found in the cross and the empty tomb where Jesus rose victorious over our sin. That we have died to sin and we are alive to you. Would you make that reality true and would you show that reality in our hearts? And would it evidence itself in our speech? Heal our hearts, Lord. Fill our hearts with you. That we would speak in such a way that honors you and does good to other people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.